again, just welcome to Creekside. If you're new, uh, take a chance to introduce yourself afterwards. Stop by the welcome table, or you can drop a, a little slip on the back of the bulletin into the offering later this morning. Uh, just a couple reminders. One is that there are two offerings at the end of the service today. The second offering is our quarterly offering for missions, okay? So that's an important reminder. The other is that we are about to start a lot of... Uh, I guess, busyness and uh, change around here is we're going to, I think this week, there's going to be some work starting on replacing our lighting fixtures. And so I know immediately after the service, is that right, Mike? Immediately after the service, if, uh, if some of you guys could come and, uh, do you, Mike, where do you want them to do? Meet up here? Meet by the windows, and uh, Mike will help direct on where some chairs and tables need to be moved around. So... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll all have to kind of just be flexible over the next few weeks and be ready for a little maybe dust, I don't know, dirt, uh, just a little more chaos than usual. Uh, but it'll be great. We'll get through it, and uh, we'll be excited to have some better functioning lights. So with that, Steve, go ahead and come on up. He's going to help us continue through the book of Matthew. And if you are in kindergarten through fifth grade, please meet the teachers at the back. Teachers... Wave your hands, all right? Meet them if you are going to Sunday school. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Alan. Yes, we're going to have a little bit of a challenge, I guess, in the weeks to come. Maybe your personal space will be a little bit invaded. Uh, we might need to scoot a little closer and sit a little closer to each other because we're going to have less room in here as we make room for some of those supplies to come in and some of the construction and then so it's going to be a little bit of a challenge I challenge the first service praying that you asking that you would pray with me that we would uh, develop a spirit of unity and a bond of love that we would actually take to heart the need to live like Christ especially among each amongst each other that we're going to have to be patient and kind and loving and, and gracious to each other. So uh, looking forward to uh, the time and the opportunity. It's a challenge. So we're maybe some of the stuff that we work through today will help us to avoid acting, and I'm coining a new word, unchristianly, okay? We don't want to act that way. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me if you would. Father, what a, what a beautiful song from the Welsh Revival, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son, that you, our Father, would give your only son to make a wretch your treasure. When I think about the words of that song, it echoes so deep in my heart, and I pray that for each of us, they would be words that are meaningful and significant. And as we continue to worship you, our Heavenly Father, who sent you, our dear Savior, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes and we might behold wonderful truths from your law as we seek to live out what it means to be your children. We pray for your grace and your mercy. We pray for your wisdom and your insight. Take your word and do its work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last spring I was standing in our house and I noticed that there were these little grease ants that were walking along in our house and I don't like ants 
Okay, and I don't like spiders, and I don't like snakes. And so uh, we, we, we identified where they were coming from, and we procured the proper treatment that would exterminate them quickly, and then we applied it. Now, we didn't totally eliminate these pests from the face of the planet. We didn't get rid of them forever, but we sure learned how we could gain victory over those little boogers in our home for the short term, okay? It's interesting that in each of our lives, there is a pest. We can't eliminate the pest, but we can learn how we can have victory over this pest, and if this pest goes unchecked, in our lives, it wreaks physical and spiritual havoc, and it creates and does a lot of damage to our lives. And so it behooves us to take aim at it, and the, this unwelcome pest in our lives is temptation. Daily, routinely, regularly, we are enticed, invited. Now, that's what temptation means, is an enticement to do evil. And daily, we are enticed to rebel against God, to rely on and reward ourselves, and to resist exalting and glorifying and trusting and relying upon our Heavenly Father. We can't escape the presence of this pest, but it's possible for us to, to gain some victory over this pest influence, this pest's influence in our life. If we have the right weapons and we deploy the right weapons and use the right tactics, we can at least put this pest at bay for a while until if we're in Christ, we're glorified and then we won't have this pest anymore. But we learn in the text that we're going to look at today what the key weapon in doing battle against this pest is. And as we look at the life of Jesus, we've seen that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Lord of the nations. Now in Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 11, we see that Jesus demonstrates that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Lord of the nations. And in doing so, what he does for us is he gives us the right ammunition for being delivered from this little pest called temptation. And what Jesus models for us is his fidelity to the Father. And, in his, and when I say fidelity, I mean his allegiance, his faithfulness. His faithfulness to the Father serves as the premier weapon that will take down and do great damage to this little pest called temptation in our lives. And this morning, if you want to take your Bible or your phone and turn, if you have an app or if you want to look under the seat in front of you, there's a Bible there, and turn to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read the text because there are three scenes in this drama that unfold before us in which we discover that it's the fidelity of, our, of, of Christ to the Father that serves as the best weapon in our arsenal for doing battle against temptation in our lives. I'm going to read the text beginning with Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 
says this, Then Jesus was led led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Three scenes in this drama, and in each scene we are made fully aware of the fidelity of the fa- uh, to the Father, Jesus' fidelity to the Father as the key to overcoming these temptations. The first scene and the first weapon, the first scene in which we see it is that Jesus shows us, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, the circumstances in which fidelity is tested, our faithfulness, our allegiance is, is being tested. And this little section, verse two verses, is kind of the preparation for his temptation. So there's the preparation for his temptation, there is the actual temptation, and then there is the result of the temptation or the consequence of that temptation in verse 11. So here we have it, and there are three insights that we gain from these verses. First of all, the, his preparation was intentional. When I... F- if you just read this, like you come off of the baptism, or Jesus has been baptized by the Father, uh, by John the Baptist, and the Father uh, says, this is my beloved Son, announces Him as the Son of God, and then, then, the first word in verse 1 is then. If we looked at the parallel passage in Mark chapter 1, we'd see the word immediately. So it was like Jesus came up out of the water of baptism, and then immediately he was led into the wilderness immediately. The same spirit that anointed him, descended upon him and anointed him, is the same spirit that led him up into the wilderness. This is an intentional thing. It's in God's plan. He had been declared the Son of God. Now he was to demonstrate that he was the Son of God. He was to validate it through resisting this temptation. He went into the wilderness I'm going to ask you that. What do you think about when you think of wilderness? I think of Grizzly Adams, you know. I think of uh, the, the West and all the trees. But I want you to see what the wilderness looked like for Jesus. This was a hostile place. It was an inhospitable place. It was a desert place. It was a dry place. It was not a very pleasant place. And Jesus was led up into the wilderness hot and barren. Now, isn't it interesting that the writer Matthew uses the word wilderness? And we think of these things. This is the same wilderness in which 
or same kind of thing that the children of Israel roamed around in. Jesus, who is God's obedient son, roamed around for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the enemy, and proved himself worthy. Now contrast that with the children of Israel, who for 40 years wandered around in the wilderness. Israel, who is God's rebellious son, roamed around for 40 years in the wilderness, and they failed miserably. Failed miserably. Now, so his preparation was intentional, but secondly, it was purposeful. There was a purpose behind it. Notice it says at the end of verse 1 that to be tempted by. That was the purpose. The express purpose was to be tempted. So he went up there to be tempted. Now that's an interesting word because it has a couple of different nuances. And the the positive nuance is that's to test so as to prove it. You test something to prove that it is what it is stated to be. I want you to see this little clip about test driving to prove. These guys wanted to test drive a pickup. So they flew them in with a helicopter to the place where we're going to test drive the pickup. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be pretty cool. I mean, this is like big boy toys, okay? So they're, 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 they're flying them in, and they're going to drive these, uh, these 6.2-liter Cummins diesel uh, pickups up this mountain pulling these logs. And these guys are like, wow, this is a real trip. You know, that was a test. Is this thing what we said it is? Jesus was tested. He was tested in the sense that he was to prove his own identity as the son, as the king. But now, negatively, you know, I think, when you think about the Bible, who was tested in the Bible? Anybody you think about in the Bible? Some of you remember Job in the Old Testament. He was tested in the Bible. He was tested because there's nothing wrong with Job, but he went through this whole ordeal of losing everything in order to gain everything back, but he didn't know he was going to get it all back, and God told Satan, you, test him to prove What God does is he he proves the genuineness and deepens our faith through tests. Last summer we had our missionary that we uh, pray for and give money to. Micah Tuttle was here. Micah was really thrilled. He and his family were serving in Peru, in the jungles of Peru, and they were excited to be missionaries there. And God all of a sudden called him back to the United States to promote missions That was a challenge. That was a a disappointment. That was a difficulty for Micah and his family because they didn't want to come back. They wanted to keep serving, but it was a test and is a test that God is testing to prove them, to strengthen, to deepen their faith. And so what is interesting is that now you have the positive, which is the test so as to prove, but then there is also the negative, and the word test is translated temptation when it's negative. Temptation is a solicitation to do evil, an enticement to do what is contrary to God and his word. And so God used Satan's tempting of Jesus to test Jesus. He used the enticement of evil to test so as to prove that Jesus indeed was the Son of God. One of my professors in seminary put it this way, God's benevolent testing 
the convergence of God's benevolent testing and Satan's malevolent, which means wicked or evil, tempting, uh, proves that Jesus really is the Son of God. It tested him, proves him that he is the Son of God and, and provides us with a weapon, okay? What is that weapon? His allegiance to the Father. We see, first of all, that he was intentional. Then it was purposeful in this temptation and what he did to him. And then finally, we see it's spiritual. He was tested by whom? The devil, the enemy, the evil one, the accursed one, the slanderer, the liar, the father of lies, the enemy. He was tested by him. That's who is the diabolical one. And what was Satan trying to do? He is intending to thwart God's plan of redemption. He's intending to thwart God's entire plan to provide salvation to lost humanity by ruining the Son of God. Because if Jesus gives in, then there's no way that Jesus can go to the cross and die for the sins of man because he would have to die for his own sins. Yeah, Satan is trying to do it. It's a spiritual thing. Look at verse 2. It says, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. What was he fasting for? Fasting is a realization of and a request for God's assistance. He was in deep need and he knew it. And so he wanted God's help and so he was fasting. And probably praying, it doesn't say that, but he was fasting because he was in need of God's assistance. I think about in the Bible, there's a story about this queen, and this queen is ready to go in before the king, and if she goes in before the king and the king doesn't extend a scepter to her, then it's over for her. But she needs to go in. Her her uncle says, you need to go in because if you don't go in, then we're all going to die because of an edict that another wicked guy had put out. The story's in the book of Esther. And so Esther says to her uncle Mordecai, you you fast and pray for three days and we will fast and pray. What is it? A realization of their need. And Jesus knew that he needed the Father. And I thought, Verse 2, isn't it interesting to you? It's like, and then he became hungry? I mean, like, if I miss a meal, if I'm four hours out, I'm getting hungry. You know, maybe not even that far. I shouldn't even say that now because you're now you're going to start, your stomach's going to growl, right? My stomach's growling right now because I'm hungry. After 40 days, he was hungry. Well, if you understand the, the physiology of it all, I think, and I, uh, uh, maybe Dr. Uh, Bradley can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but, you know, immediately you feel hunger, but then after a certain period of time, the the hunger kind of wanes. It just kind of goes away because your body's just, and then maybe it came back. I don't know, but it did come back. That's what it says. He was hungry. And guess what? When you're hungry, as uh, my, the great theologian Vince Lombardi once said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. When we're weak, we're vulnerable. And Jesus was vulnerable. And that's what the setup was. Spiritual resolve wanes in the presence of emotional and physical weakness. Spiritual resolve wanes in the presence of physical and emotional weakness. Makes us cowards. You give up. You know, when you're tired or you're more prone to be short and terse with your family... 
Or are you going to be loving and generous and patient and kind? Oh, it's okay that you just stepped on my toe and broke it because I'm real, I love you anyway. No. This is the lead up. This is the preparation. Secondly, we see in verses 3 through 10 that Jesus shows us the conduct of fidelity in the face of temptation. He shows us the circumstances that led up to the temptation. Now it's the conduct that manifests his fidelity. And there are three spiritual enticements that are presented here. Three different ways in which the enemy tempts us. That when they're confronted using the same effective tactics that reveal faithfulness, it actually mitigates the temptation. It reduces it. It minimizes it. It strips it of its lure. And so we'll look at them each in turn. First of all, in verses 3 and 4, Jesus shows us how to overcome serving ourself. Or some might say, the lust of the flesh. Serving ourselves. How do we overcome that thing? Serving ourselves. Well, the tempter came at the height of Jesus' need to serve himself. He was hungry. Now, is it wrong to be hungry? Is it wrong to want to eat? No, no. And so here we see the two tactics that Jesus employed. And he employed the same two tactics in each of these three temptations. Tactics that we need to employ if we're going to unleash the weapon of faithfulness to God, fidelity to God, which really deals a death blow to the temptation. And here they are. First of all, he, we must recognize perversity or the perversion. I like what Thomas Gundry in his commentary said. He said, and I'll read the text, first of all, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, and it says, if you are the Son of God, what had God himself just said of Jesus? This is my beloved Son. Well, if you are really the Son of God... I like what Gundry said. Jesus is not tempted to doubt his sonship, but to exercise it in a manner contrary to the servant model implied at his baptism. The temptation appeals to Jesus on at least two levels, two human levels. When we are in need, when we feel physically in need or emotionally in need, here's the two levels that he appeals upon. First of all, if he succumbed to the temptation, he could experienced personal gratification. He could personally gratify his need. He was hungry. He could satisfy that. And secondly, he could avoid painful submission. So think about it. When we're tempted with the lust of the flesh, it's either we want to gratify that flesh or we really don't want to prolong that suffering and be submissive to the Father's plan. I really want what I want when I want it now. So, Jesus was tempted, just like you and I are. He was tempted to fill his gut and be free from the Father's guidance. Which, if you look at a lot of our temptations, that's, I just want to satisfy myself, and I want to be free from what God wants me to do, is a lot of what's going on. The devil sought to cast doubt into Jesus' mind. You know, you really can't trust God. You know, what about, is God really good? If he was really good, why are you so hungry? 
Do you really trust God's grace? Do you really accept that God is guiding you and where you're at right now is really what God has as, as his best for you? And I would submit to you that in all of life's difficulties and the circumstances and, and disappointments, we're tempted to doubt God in the same way. We're tempted to doubt God that, um, that, and, and think that life is just about us. Right? I mean, really, we exist for ourselves. That's the temptation that Satan placed for us. And, and not about trusting God. I mean, it's, it's, it's my feelings and my rights and my concerns and my needs and my comfort and my convenience and my time in my way. That's what Jesus is saying. All this stuff needs fulfilled. I need satisfied. I need gratified. And I need it now. It's uh, sad to me that a church that I'm very familiar with, and I maybe I've told you this. I can't remember if I did or not. But the, there was a, the pastor there got involved with an, one of the women in the church. Guess things weren't working too well for either one of them at home. So my way, my time, my feelings, my convenience, my comfort, me, now, right? That's what it is, and that's what we submit to. And we live in an age in which that is seemingly okay. It's on the job, at school, at work, in life, in your family. Satan is the master. He just waits. He just waits. He's lurking around, waiting until you're fatigued. Waiting till you're experiencing some disappointment. Waiting until you're sad. Waiting until you're lonely. Waiting until you feel rejection. Waiting until you feel confused. Or maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's an injury. Something bad happens and then all of a sudden, there he is. Maybe it's just boredom. And he says, you know what? God, God gave up on you. He's a little liar and the father of lies. God gave up on you. And you know what? Remedy and relief and reward is within your grasp. All you have to do is go get it. It's up to you. It's up to you. Just do it. See, God is really not working in your best interest right now, and you deserve better than that. That's the lie of the enemy. He threw it at Jesus. You know. So then what happens when, when we start to listen to that lie, then, hey, all of a sudden cheating on my exam to get a better grade or pornography as a substitute for real intimacy or cheating and lying and stealing to make more money so I can buy more stuff to have things I don't need to buy to impress people I don't know seems to be justified. I can start eating more food to satisfy and fulfill the loneliness of my soul. It seems to be okay because God doesn't want me to feel this way. God doesn't want me to, to, to hurt like this. So we serve self rather than submit to the Father and say, God, your will be done, not mine. Secondly, we must rely on, the, on God and His promises. So we must... Realize or recognize the perversion. Then we must rest on God and His promises, which is what verse 4 is. But He answered, Jesus answered and said, If it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You see, Jesus grasped what the Israelites did not grasp. This passage in Deuteronomy 8.3 was the children of Israel getting ready to go back into the promised land, and the first time they missed it. They were punished for their disobedience. That's why they wandered around for 40 years, and they still were disobedient. And God gave them in the wilderness manna. But this text reveals that Jesus knew what they forgot, that the manna was there to teach them that what they needed was not just physical bread. They needed much more than bread. They needed a relationship with God, a reliance upon Him and a reliance upon His Word, an allegiance to God that was manifest through their obedience to God. That was more important. You see, Jesus told them that they needed real life comes from having and heeding the Word of God. And having and heeding the Word of God is a result of a connection with God. It's not just like, okay, well, and that's the thing I want to avoid here is, It's not just a matter of quoting the scriptures. There is power in the word, and that's important. But I think what was going on in Jesus was he was connected to the Father who gave the words. So that the God who gave him the words, his heavenly Father, what he said meant something to Jesus. So that he was saying, I'm going to be true to God and his person and his promises. Not just... Well, slap a verse on it. No, it was deeper than that. It was richer than that for Jesus. It was his relationship with and his reliance upon his father's provision, evidenced by his obedience. That was needed way more than just bread. I need my father, and I need my relationship with him, and I rest in his promises. And when I do that, hey, you know what? It's nice to have bread too. But, but I, I can't live without the Father and my relationship with Him. Even more vital to our lives than food is faith in our Father. When I grew up as a kid, my dad was there, you know, and I'm sorry for some of you for whom that's not the case. I never doubted that I'd be fed. I rested and trusted. I had confidence in and a connection with my dad that he would provide for us. He would protect us. He would point in the right direction. And so whenever I was tempted to go a different direction that would sever my relationship with my father, I saw my relationship with my dad in his words way more important than whatever I would gain from some temporary slumping into uh, debauchery or inconvenience. Because my relationship with my dad was way more important than this stuff over here. It, it didn't hold the same lure that my relationship with my dad did. Fidelity that's due to faith. Allegiance to God that's due to faith in our Father's promises and provisions strips the temptation of its lure. It's just not that good of a thing anymore because I have it better. Maybe not right now, but, but later I will. You see, we live in an age of entitlement. We live in an age of self-gratification, instant gratification. And what I want trumps what God wants, often. And I'm reminded, and I know that I've, I've, or I'm pretty sure I've quoted these words to you, but this quote by C.S. Lewis just captures it. 
He says this, we are half-hearted creatures. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Paul wrote at the end of Philippians chapter 4. In verse 19, these words, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Do we believe that? My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. Not not according to as much as he has, which is infinite. He is able to supply it. And then Jesus, secondly, the second temptation, Jesus, in verses 5 and 7, Jesus shows us how to overcome testing God, how to overcome the pride of life. Look at we see in verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him into this holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, there it is again, throwing that in his face, if you're the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written. Okay, Jesus, you're a trust in the Father's word person, right? So here's here's what God's word says. And then he quotes Psalm 91 to him. In verse 6, it says, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on your hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Okay, Jesus, you're the Son of God. Again, I don't think he's doubting that he's the Son of God. I think he's saying he wants you to prove it in a way that demeans the Father, that forces the Father to operate on Jesus' terms, not Jesus to operate on the Father's term as the, sin, as the Son of God as the, in his humanity. Oh, okay. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself. So here we are. Satan enticed Jesus to arrogantly and presumptuously exercise his prerogative as the Son of God to force the Father into an action that was created by Jesus. It's not real life. This was something we're testing God now at this point. We're putting God to the test. And it's interesting that Satan was tempting Jesus to recklessly force the Father into action out of artificial need. Because Jesus knows that Satan is the angel of, uh, manifests himself as an angel of light. It was 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 14. And it it says that uh, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And folks, it's not just Jesus then. Satan continues to disguise himself as an angel of light. How does he do that? Well, hey, the Bible, right? He's quoting the Bible. Well, I've had people at my door Quoting the Bible or saying that the Bible says that, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is, is not God, the Father. He's not equal with the Father. You know, you've had them at your doors too. Uh, you know, they leave the little Watchtower Track Society uh, things and they say that Jesus is not God. Other, other religious systems teach that, that we are becoming gods. Or that Jesus and Satan are are spirit brothers. Other people teach that 
And they use the Bible and they say that, you know, God really doesn't know. These are called open theists, that God really doesn't know the future free decisions of independent agents. That somehow you make a decision, you catch God off guard. Oh, that's interesting. I can, I can surprise God. Other people teach that, uh, you know, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And they quote Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged. The moral relativists, the emergent church, they just said, well, we're going to pick certain portions of the scripture that are relevant for us, and the rest of it we're just going to ignore. Then there's a prosperity gospel that if you really have enough faith, that you should be healthy and wealthy if you have enough faith. And they quote some verses, and they, throw, they slap them on there, and they think that that's supporting what God says. And then there's another uh, group that says, that well, you know, it's just all about love. God loves you, and that's all you need to know. Does God love us? Absolutely God loves us. But God loves us, and His love is most manifest and understand when we understand that He is righteous and that He judges sin. But they leave that part out. You know, We don't talk about God's judgment and sin and that kind of stuff. Well, then where does God's love come in? What does God's love mean if there is no sin? It's convoluted. What I'm saying is that it's easy to take the Bible and twist it to make it whatever you want to say. And when we do that, we test God, and that's a sin. It severs our relationship with Him. My dear wife had a friend, a good friend in college, and based on the Bible and some teachers of the Bible, she sold everything she had. She moved to Israel and went up on a roof waiting for Jesus to return. This was like 25, 30 years ago. Well, does the Bible teach that Jesus will return? Yes. But, hello, it doesn't say when. And I would say to you, Mark 13, 32, Jesus himself doesn't know when. He didn't when he was here on earth. He said that. So it's up to the Father. So we have these things. Jesus challenges this incomplete. So he, he recognized the perversion. That's the key point. Recognized the perversion. And then he relied upon God and his promises. He challenges this incomplete understanding of the Scripture. Now, you know, this, this whole coronavirus thing is like crazy now, right? And when... when do you know that the, the Chinese government, they suppressed the information? In fact, one of the doctors that was trying to let it out, uh, he died of the virus. And he was trying to tell him, you need to let people know about this. They suppressed the truth. Well, they're still doing that, I'm sure. It's still probably way worse than what we know. But we're getting more information. Satan is a father of lies. He's going to try to lie. And Jesus tries to expose him. And his misapplication of Psalm 91 when he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 and verse 7. On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Is God able to deliver us when we're in the presence of danger? Absolutely. Will he keep us safe when, when he decides to? Yes. But do we artificially manufacture a situation in which God's promises are tested? No, that's not right we don't create the danger and demand that God selfishly protect us because he said he would Satan's invitation was to test God by demanding that he operate on the son's terms and not his own 
I like the way John MacArthur brings home this whole thing. And he says, to live recklessly and carelessly and then expect God to bail us out when we get into trouble is to presume upon his grace. Our need is not to prove God's faithfulness, but to demonstrate our own. Get that? It's to demonstrate our own faithfulness to God. Trusting Him both to determine and to supply our needs according to His own will. You know what? When we live for Jesus, we're going to risk things. We're going to risk our time and our treasures and our money and our our talents. I just think about our Haiti team. Remember last, uh, like, September? Like, the State Department came out and said, you know, you probably shouldn't travel to Haiti right now because it's not really safe. And so our, our Haiti team's kind of freaking out because they had their plane tickets bought, and they're like, well, what should we do? What should we do? Should we go? Should we not go? And they made some phone calls, and they prayed about it, and they talked to people that they knew. They did reasonable, rational, and normal stuff to understand whether the risk was, 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 was okay. It's still a risk. It's living for Jesus is a risk. But they got the information. They didn't just jump off a cliff. Say, God protect us. No, they used rational means, and God rewarded it. The only time in the Bible where we're supposed to test God is in giving. <laughs> Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. You know, that's the only time we're supposed to test God. The other times we're not supposed to mess around with it. See, Jesus proves to me that allegiance that manifests itself in obedience and submission to the Word of God is actually what's really necessary to triumph over arrogance and pride. And the pride of life. I can test God. Yeah, do it, do it my way, God. Then, thirdly, so there's this, he helps us with the lust of the flesh, and he helps us with the pride of life, and then he helps us with the lust of the eyes. When, how to overcome worshiping Satan or, or, or idolatry in verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. He says, again, the devil took him to a high, very high mountain. Now, we don't know whether he actually took him there or whether this was uh, you know, in, 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 in his mind. But anyhow, somehow, Jesus sees the, the world. And Satan says, ah, look at this world, this glorious world. And think about it. At, at that time, you know, Jesus could have been shown the pyramids of Egypt. Okay. Got that slide, Chad? Yeah, the pyramids of Egypt. He could have shown him the Roman Colosseum. He could have shown him the Parthenon in Greece and said, you can have it all. And you get to rule over it all and you get all the riches from all of these kingdoms in the world. I will give them to you, is what he says. Now, some of you know the name Jeff Bezos. The CEO of Amazon, okay? The guy's, you know, billionaire, whatever. I didn't check it on Google or whatever, but I'm sure he has billions. Now, would he trade his billions if he could rule the world? Maybe. I don't know Jeff Bezos from Adam, but I'm guessing that, you know, that'd be an upgrade, right? Uh, Rule the world with all the world's riches versus what you got. And then I think about this. What in the world is Satan thinking? Tempting the Son of God with giving him the world. It's like he already owns it. I mean, he made it. If he wanted it better, he would have made it better. Well, think about it. It's a trade-off. Lust of the eyes, pride of life, 
It's the lust of the eyes. Ooh, I got that. I want that now. Satan wants Jesus to bypass the misery and the agony and the humility of Calvary. And take it now. Just take it now. You can have it all now. You don't have to go through that. I'll give it to you now. See? Woo. Now he ups the ante. You don't have to go through the pain, the suffering, the agony, the humility of dying on the cross for other people's sins. No, you can have all this stuff right now. That was the temptation that he was throwing in the face of Jesus. Satan offers pleasure. He offers power. He offers possessions. He offers us prestige quickly. And he offers us to immediate gratification and you don't have to suffer the agony of obedience to God to get it. I mean, anybody who's honest is not going to tell you that sin isn't fun. For a time. Oh yeah, it has its lure. But the problem is, Satan doesn't say how much it will cost. Ah, just your soul. Just your soul. That's all. He's trying to sell us. So he doesn't market it up front, what it really is. He lures us with immediate gain, hoping we'll ignore the long-term pain. Because he thinks we're chumps. You know? Yeah, you guys don't have any discipline. You don't have any self... No. So he lures us with it. John MacArthur nails it here. I couldn't say it any better. He, and and I, I say this, I think about, I'm going to use this again. But he says, Satan's price is always immeasurably more than he leads us to believe. And what he gives is always immeasurably less than what he promised. Think politicians. Okay. What it costs is always immeasurably more than what he leads us to believe. And what he gives is always immeasurably less than what he promised. See, Satan wants our eyes on the stuff and not on Jesus, the Savior. We got a choice. Jesus had a choice. Get my eyes on the stuff or on the Savior. We must recognize the perversion. And then we must rely upon God and his promises. And that's what we see. In verse 10, he says, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Like that, be gone. What was Jesus or Satan trying to tempt Jesus to do? Hey, just exercise some of this divine power and your authority. Just kind of show me some of that that macho uh, God stuff right now. Let me see it. And Jesus kind of baits him and baits him and baits him. And he says, okay, now I'm going to show it to you. Get out of here. Leave. You're done. Well, it's over. And he, he does it. And he says, get out of here. Jesus affirmed the greatest commandment in his rebuff of Satan. You know what, Satan? I'm supposed to love God and him only. That's the greatest commandment. That's my allegiance is to my father. And that's why I worship only God and serve Him. And fidelity to the Lord is that which triumphs over idolatry. 
How can I resist the idolatry? Only when God and what Jesus has done for us in Christ is more precious. My love for God, my relationship with Him, that's the main thing. Idolatry leads to spiritual death. There's no immediate temporal gain that outweighs our eternal life. Nothing, you know. What are the man who's, you know, gives up the, gives up the, who would not give up the world for their soul? That's the, that's the deal. And so the conclusion of this all is that Jesus shows us the conclusion that fidelity triumphs. Two results, verse 11, Satan's gone, the angels are serving Jesus. Oh, this is James chapter 4, verse 7, right? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Interesting, though, after Jesus has gone through this, and then after he went through his entire life, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that we have another little tactic in our arsenal. It's not just about recognizing the perversion. It's not just about relying upon God and his word, but it's also resting in our Savior. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a, we have a sympathetic high priest who, who, who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Because Jesus went through it. He knows exactly what we're going through when we're tempted. And I can rest in him. And I can trust in him. And so if you're the night today and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it seems to me that a growing satisfaction as I pray, God, help me get to know you better and love you more. It's a growing satisfaction in our relationship with with God. It means that I rely on Him and His Word more consistently. And it is evidenced when I recognize the perversion. When I rely upon God and His Word and then I rest in Him in the face of all these temptations. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I'd just like to challenge you, or you don't know if you know Jesus, I'd just like to challenge you with this thought. I'm sure There are patterns and practices and perspectives that you have that you know are detrimental to your life. Things that you're you're going down a bad path. Maybe not right this moment, but at times. And it's those things that you feel you have no freedom over, you are in bondage to, and that you can't get free from the harm and the pain that it causes. And I have good news for you. Because Jesus went to the cross. He didn't succumb to these temptations and any other temptation along the way. So he went to the cross and he died as the sinless son of God so that his death on the cross could be the payment that you and I deserve for our sins. And had he succumbed to what Satan was enticing him to do, it'd all be over. Game over. Pack up, go home. But he won. He didn't. And we have the victory in Christ. And so if we would admit that we're messed up and that we deserve God's judgment and then we would acknowledge that Jesus, when he died on the cross, paid the debt that I deserve to pay and then we would actually accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and turn from our sin and trust in him, then we would be free from the power of sin. You see, that's the key. Everyone who's here in Christ has power over sin's ability 
to lead us into temptation. No, not to lead us into temptation. We're going to go there. It has power to keep us from succumbing to the temptation. One day, we'll be free from the temptations. Right now, we're in them, you know. We're kind of mulling around in the soup of temptation. How do we fight it? Through the person and the work of Jesus. He modeled it for us. Fidelity to the Father. Do I love my God and His Word more? And I'm obedient to Him. Am I willing to recognize what is perverse? Am I willing to rely upon God and His Word and forego the immediate pleasures for the sake of permanent gain? I'm willing to rest in the fact that He knows what I'm going through. You know, when we take bread and break it and drink the cup, we remember and rejoice that Jesus resisted so that all who put their faith or their trust in Christ would be pardoned and that we have power over the enemy through the person and the work of Jesus. If you're here this morning and we break this bread and take this cup, I invite you to join with us as a celebration of the victory we have in Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, then just stay seated or whatever and, or turn and trust Christ today and come up here and say, you know what? There's truth in the word of God and I believe it today that Jesus died for me and forgave my sins. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you'd help me in the daily fray, help each of us in the daily fray of life to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's not grow weary in doing good. Let us give us wisdom to recognize the perversions. Give us courage to rely upon you and your word and insight and freedom to rest in you, to overcome day by day, for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.